0: As the stock market was never meant to produce retirement income the job of the stock market is not retirement income it's to allocate capital you're asking the stock market to, to do something it was never designed to do in vanguard and fidelity everyone tried to do these big stuff on house and guess what they can't do it are
1: you ready to transform your life this is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth even while working full-time get ready to take
0: notes Here's your host, Socket Jane.
1: My great to have listeners, if you own and manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange. Because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes, and you could even exchange into a replacement property, that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend, Ray Druitt, is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services, and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801-312-9482, or you may visit his website at 1031.bangertorfinancial.com/slash. 1031 guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic that has a lot of taboo attached to it. And that's why I brought an expert here to you to kind of talk about that topic. Before I tell you what the topic is, let me at least introduce the guest we have today, Barry Dyke. Barry, how are you, buddy?
0: Great, socket. You're looking good, my man. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. So,
1: Barry is, and I'm probably going to not do justice to your introduction, Barry. That's by design. Because as we unfold your story, your introduction is going to come out as we have the conversation. But I want to give set the stage for folks here. Barry is the president of Castle Asset Management LLC out in New Hampshire. And is really, his life's work is helping people plan for their retirement. To the point that he's actually part of a documentary called Baby Boomer Dilemma. And he's also writing his fourth book. He's actually a best-selling author. His books are right now structured around 23 different countries. And his latest book is called The Pirates of Manhattan 3. He owns a self-publishing company. I think he's like 300 years old because the amount of accomplishment he has, nobody can do that in the short span of 100 years. Not that he's 100 years old. But very, this has been great. It's my honor to present to you, to my audience, so that we can learn from your wisdom. Thank you again for taking the time.
0: Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So you're much too kind. I'm just a white-haired guy from New Hampshire with a computer. That's all I am, you know?
1: What they used to say, <clears throat> pen is mightier than the sword. I think now it's the computer. Thank
0: you. You're much too kind.
1: Awesome, man. Barry, so before we jump into the show, Barry, I will probably put you on the spot. What does the name Migrate to Wealth mean to you?
0: I think really the goal of most people really is to be financially independent, if you will, to be not beholden to any financial institutions, or family whatever i think this really that's kind of the, one of the major problems today socket in financial planning uh throughout the world is the problem of debt and i think migration to wealth to me means that really kind of freedom to do what you want to do and practice whatever god-given talents yeah. you have to really not to be a slave to wealth i think debt is the new slavery uh socket that's just yeah. this is
1: my opinion. Yeah, 100%, Barry. I think we're seeing that. And that is definitely a very broad topic because we could talk about personal debt, we could talk about consumer debt, we could talk about debts to run businesses, we can talk about the debt that our federal reserves love to deploy on us, right? There's different levels of debt. We'll be talking about debt in general. I'm assuming your point of debt is really around the debt debt's not productive, which is definitely the federal bank's debt. Which is non-productive debt, which is really printing money from thin air. That has the biggest component on everyone's future, not just the country's future, but our individual futures as well. Is that correct? Steve? Yeah, I
0: agree. You're yeah. spot on. You no, know, so that was kind of my awakening socket. I don't know if you read a book, *The Creature from Jekyll Island*. Yeah, I, I don't love, know if you read that.
1: love that book. I don't think we have actually asked our audience to read that book because I know it's a big book. It's like 500 pages book, but there's summaries after every chapter, which I always tell just read the summaries. If you can't read the entire book,
0: yeah. So but anyway, so G. Edward Griffin actually, I've actually spoken at conferences with him, various conferences. He's a very bright guy. So, and he actually researcher part of that was a guy by the name of Eustace Mullins. But to make a long story short, when until I figured out how the banking system worked, yeah, socket, I, could, I could, really couldn't figure out how to help people with financial planning and stuff like that. And then when I did figure out how the system really works or didn't work. And how we continue to go from one bailout to another. And it's not just in the U.S. socket, as you know. It's in Europe. It's you know the central banks of China, Japan, India. You name it. They all bail out all the financiers. So when I figured out that really the banks were for the uh, the central banks were for, for the banks, and not for the. That's when I was able yeah. to help people.
1: Yeah, no. So I didn't grow up in this country. I grew up in India, no, and big then big. spent about twenty-two years there. When I moved here, I literally thought federal bank is a federal institution, right? Once I knew about it, which was probably about five years into the country, I'm like, that's interesting. Then I actually asked my friends and family who were, they were born and brought up here. I mean, what do you think is a Fed? They're like, oh, it's a federal institution given by, I'm like, oh my God, it's not just me. They have named, and I cannot encourage people more now to read Creature from Jekyll Island by Edward Griffin because you'll understand the makings of the Federal Reserve Bank and how they came up with the name. And actually, and I won't give away the name, there's actually a different name before they called this Fed Bank and something about cartel. So I encourage you guys to look at it, read into it. So what Barry is saying and what I'm saying, it's not a made up a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. It's actually true.
0: It's very true. And so when the thing is to win the thing is I tell people to read because we all love this media that we have now, but I don't know how you are, Saket. I mean, you're a very accomplished guy. You grew up in India, huh? So you came over here and I have good friends of mine who are Indians. And awesome. You guys over here are just tough cookies, man. You're just, I have a tremendous admiration for what you've done. But the best learning still today, even to this day, Saket, it is in the printed word. Right. Generally in books. Right. Okay. Right. People start reading about this stuff. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but when people understand the central banks, well, the federal reserve is, as I say, is it's not federal. There are no reserves Definitely. It's in common with the federal government as federal express does. So when I learned that banks really work for uh, the federal reserve, banks work for the banks. That's when my whole approach really mm-hmm. kind of more consumer oriented.
1: And Barry, we won't give away your age. How long ago was that? When did you discover it?
0: I was at an advisory conference. This is like in 96, maybe, mm-hmm. thereabouts. I was at a, a, it. Was in San Diego. It was actually at the Cornell Hotel in San Diego. It's a beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, Saka. Have you ever been there?
1: I have not. I mean, I've been to San Diego, but I, I don't know which hotel you're talking about. San Diego is beautiful.
0: It was the old Coronel Del Mar, whatever hotel. It's one of the old... Uh-huh. It was the first hotel which uh, Thomas Edison actually put lighting in. You know oh, and wow. really, I
1: need to get there. I have not seen it
0: it's real it's beautiful and even so it's a really beautiful place so and even so I had had pretty successful business. I used to do a lot of corporate benefit plans and things like that okay. and you know helping companies go public and things like that. but make a long story short I was at a, at a breakfast meeting you know like kind of like today or something, and someone started telling me about the Federal Reserve wasn't federal the reserve that said, what so I started reading and then it I just haven't stopped since then
1: very so, what so, was the Beyond just that, you said something which is very, very important, right? That your work in life, your life's work is all about helping people retire, helping people have enough wealth to make sure that the life doesn't run out of money. Exactly. In order to do that, you can't really help them unless you really understand. And your clients can't even, your people who you serve, if they don't understand how money works in the US and in the world, you can't really plan for something that you don't understand. Right and how it's created, how it's circulated, how you're incentivized. So, give us a brief summary, if you were to do maybe a two to three minute of summary of how does money work in the U.S.
0: Well, it's, it, all money is debt, as you know. It's created out of thin air by the central bank, which is it's a nonprofit. You know, essentially the Federal Reserve nonprofit. All the profits get swept off to the Treasury each year. But you're in like North Carolina or that area. So I guess the closest Federal Reserve Bank is few, I guess, in Atlanta. The regional banks are on their own own part of the Atlanta Fed. So the thing people don't understand is that the only thing that really backs up the money used to be backed up by gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the only really it, thing that backs up is the full faith and credit of, of you and I, which are taxpayers right. now. Right. But the thing is, is that as a result, we've been able to become a great country, becoming a, one of the world's reserve currencies. But now because we've just... We've diluted the currency so much that we're having challenges from other countries. But the whole thing is that with banks can create money out of thin air. But if you don't pay back the money they create out of thin air, they can repossess all your assets. Correct. This is So what I'm trying to do help people have more control because of debt is a form of slavery. And I'm not against business debt or mortgage debt or anything like that. But most of the debt today is of an usury nature. Right. And if you study all the great religions, uh, whether it be Catholicism or Judaism or... Christianity or even um, Islam, whatever—it's always been um, kind of a bad karma, if you will, to charge high rates of interest. Yeah, but now today in America, you can charge whatever you want. So usury, which has been essentially been considered a sin, if you will, is fully legal today.
1: So when you say usury, what does that word mean?
0: Usury—excessive interest. Got it. But anyway, so what do you think the maximum you can charge on a loan is? And say I'm in the state of New Hampshire. Suck it. Okay. What do you think the maximum amount of interest you can charge a alone here in this state? I have a
1: feeling is, infinite.
0: You get it right away, man. Yeah. People say 30%, 20%, 30. There is no, no limit. limit. Wow. Wow. And that's legal. It's purely legal. And this, if, they, if people should go to my, they read the, uh, my first book, The Parts Manhattan, which came out in 2007, go to com and get that. So that was kind of like my great awakening. But this actually until like the 1980s, if you will, there were kind of limits on uh, what a bank could charge. There was actually a separation of traditional deposit-based lending, which, in other words, if you put money into a bank, and then you would have, on one hand, then you'd have investment banking, you know, which is the stocks and bonds, the, the speculative. So there was a real lot more protection for the consumer prior to this, okay? Right. So in 1999, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, so this it's been a free-for-all ever since then. But during that whole period, between the 1980s and 1999, repeal of usury laws and things like that. Started to happen. So, a lot of the things, the seat belts and guardrails, which were put in to protect consumers, have since been removed. Right.
1: Okay. Now that makes sense. So, Barry, let's actually jump into the next part here. So, we know the problem that exists that the money is being printed. It's basically a debt based society right now, at least when we talk about that at the macro level, right? Even if you have zero debt, the system that you live in is inundated with debt. So, everyone is living a debt heavy lifestyle right now. Yeah. So when you help your clients, and I know we were talking about, we're going to discuss a topic at this point, I'm going to bring that topic and I want to keep it in suspense. Is really the topic of annuities, right? And I know it's a tabooed word because if you listen to, for those folks who are big fans of Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, you'll probably hear that just like a whole life insurance policy as well. You'll hear the term saying, don't go annuities are a scam, Right. Nothing in the world is a scam. I think you have to understand it to realize is it a scam or not. Just because somebody's saying it doesn't mean that because you have to look at the audience that Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey has. They're not talking to people. They're trying to get them out of debt because most of their debt is consumer debt, right? And
0: Which, that's one thing about Dave Ramsey. I, will, I don't agree with his stuff on investments about getting people out of debt. I, I'm in wholehearted agreement with him.
1: Completely. And when they're looking at they're addressing a different sector, for our audience, they're fairly sophisticated, and we want to keep, introduce, keep improving their sophistication when it comes to money, investment, wealth in general. So one thing I would love to understand is, Barry, let's spend next few minutes really trying to break the myth of annuity. And let's start with defining, for those listeners who may have never heard of the word annuity, let's break it down, K-12, through 12, what is really an annuity?
0: annuities you know they're as old as you know man i mean annuities actually first started being used by roman soldiers during the roman empire Annuity coming from the latin word meaning to pay annually for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. so the idea of an annuity is first like old age pensions if you will going back to roman times yeah and today an annuity essentially an income stream guaranteed income stream for life or you know for a certain period of time whatever so it's a guaranteed income stream and the important thing socket to know is it's a contract okay now because all these other investors we have stocks bonds i'm not against them but they're very speculative in nature right okay? but an annuity or a life insurance contract essentially like a whole life contract whatever they're actually legal contracts and they actually promise to pay and mm. this is makes it a totally different animal from all the financial finance universe so everything else is like if anyone reads their disclosure or their arbitration agreement or whatever, there's really essentially no, there is no guarantees. But if you read a contract, an annuity contract, essentially it's a promise to pay. Who would be the most common example of an annuity would be your Social Security. That's an annuity. Right. If, your pension plan with a, if you're lucky enough to have a corporate pension plan, you would be getting essentially a joint survivor annuity or a single life annuity. Or if you're a government employee, which is a government pension plan, okay, whether it be North Carolina or New Hampshire or whatever, those are all annuities guy. So they're a really good thing, and they give people peace of mind. So annuities, if people could think of as pension, they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's different variations what yeah. we do with these things, and they're used all the time for legal settlements, for divorce settlements, or for malpractice claims and things like that. So they're a very, very important financial instrument within a society, but they just yeah. get a bad name because a lot of people just want everyone to gamble with their money.
1: Correct, correct. And Barry, when we talk, and thank you for saying that, because annuity is important, it's really like a pension. It's a guaranteed income for the remainder of your life and whenever you start it. So let's actually go to the basics of that from the issuer perspective. Why would they want to guarantee something? What are they getting in return?
0: Well, obviously, you know, I'm a capitalist. Everyone has to be in business to make a profit. So the thing is, a typical good insurance company, whatever, and I like mutuals and fraternals. I'm a snob, okay? But I like the ones which are the soundest. They can make money on the spread, whether it be on the mortality charge or something. They can make a good, honest living, okay? It's not going to be Wall Street wealth. And they're also protected within a society with certain tax benefits and so forth, how the Got reserves are taxed. It. So it's good business. I mean, okay. long-term, it's stable.
1: Got it. And Barry, if somebody was to, let's say you have a client, let's pretend I'm your client, I'm coming to you. I'm like, hey, Barry, I need some help in retirement. And we through the conversation, we're like, you know what, maybe annuity is the best next step. What does that mean to me now? Do I have to invest some dollars? Is it like a life insurance premium on a monthly basis? What does the structure of annuity look like?
0: Well, generally it's a lump sum. So the big problem right now is the 401ks and things of that nature saga is that they're just accumulation vehicles. Yeah. The stock market was never meant to produce retirement income. The job right. of the stock market is not retirement income. It's the stock the role. Of the stock market is to allocate capital. Yeah. So yeah. you're asking the stock market to, to do something it was never designed to do. I'll never True. do it. True. Okay. True. And Vanguard and Fidelity, everyone tried to do these things stuff on now uh, in house and guess what they can't do it. Mm. They, tried, they tried, they tried, they tried, they can't do it. Okay so my research which which is really kind of wild is that i realized these major financial institutions even in the banks and so forth they're actually using annuities and life insurance in a very very big way mm. to accomplish the goals and corporations are doing this as well so for instance they say a company like at&t which is the largest telecom in the world all right based yeah. in texas or. Yeah. The executives are and uh, anyone called me, I'll verify this, but CEO just retired to get like a two hundred two point three million million annuity for life. So a lot of this stuff is invested with life insurance companies. And so this goes back to another thing called bank owned life insurance, corporate owned life insurance, which can be converted into annuity for income stream for life. Mm-hmm. So you're in the real estate, you do a lot of real estate investing, am I correct? I do, yeah, we got
1: multifamily. I mean, we are pretty diversified because we get, we invest in businesses as well, venture capital fund. But bread and butter, I would say, is hard assets, which are real things. Okay,
0: so which is well, and I'm a big fan of hard assets. All right, so the thing is, with it, beautiful thing about a life insurance, you can do what's called a 1035 exchange. Mm. Okay, which is you have a whole, say you have a life policy, um, and you can take that and convert that into via 1035 exchange, convert that into annuity, which is a lifetime income for life, and also enjoy uh, tax benefits. But you also get what's called the exclusion ratio. So a lot of that income will come out to people income tax-free under the Mm. exclusion ratio.
1: And Barry, why would somebody want to convert life insurance to annuity? What's the reason for that, especially with a cash value life? And I'm new to annuity, so I'm I'm using this as a learning for myself as well. If I have a life insurance policy, especially if it's a cash value life insurance policy, I can always take a loan on that, right? And that loan is pretty much a guarantee because it's money sitting in the cash for life insurance. So from a critical thinking perspective, if I already have a vehicle that allows me to take money out when I need it, why would I use a vehicle which is guaranteeing a lifetime income versus and exchange it for a, a huge pot of money that's sitting sort of to help me serve as my cash reserves?
0: Yeah, well, no argument here. I mean, it's like I, cashed I own a lot myself. I recommend it to people. Me, I mean, so it's see all pensions socket were essentially, if you go and read my first book, all pensions were essentially life insurance policies where there would be mm. say an endowment, say a 10, 20 year endowment. And at, at the time when the policy, in other words, so the life policy would protect a person for 10, 20 years, Got it. the beneficiaries. And then at the endowment, that would be turned into an income stream. Mm. So that's really all. when you understand a whole life product, okay. You really understand how a pension really works. But that's how generally how they start. So yeah, I agree with you because when you understand the economics and you understand the headwinds of, of, within an economy, there's no better place to set aside cash with, than within a life policy. This is no question about it. As a matter of fact, all the banks, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, all these banks, they all have huge positions in this stuff. They all do, and I testified in on that. So it actually, some of my research actually ended up in banking commissions, but that's another story. But so the whole thing is that you can do it either way. What I'm saying it opens up the whole thing. Socket is really kind of simple. A lot of it comes down to discipline, right. saving, you know. Right. You know it. I mean, it's just more, your rate of savings is really more important than rate of return.
1: I think you touched on an important point there, right? Most people don't understand that is rate of savings is more important than rate of return, Right. And, and I think even before that, your preservation of capital is way more important at the same level. Preservation of capital is way more important than return on capital, right? And unfortunately, again, going back to what you were saying is most people are really, they want to gamble. Gambling is exciting. There's a reason why casinos exist. If everyone's thinking sensibly, they know the odds are stacked against them, but it gives the rush, Right. And that's okay. I'm not saying gambling is good or bad. I'm not passing any judgment on that. But when you try to look at the investments on your retirement, gambling is probably not the safest way to get there. There are other more conservative ways. Part of that is we're talking about life insurance policy. On this channel, there's several life insurance products that we've discussed before. We're talking about annuities. I think what they do is it's kind of like a forced saving mechanism because once you're in that contract, to get out of it is very expensive. So you want to make sure you go in sensibly. And once you go in, you're committed now. It's like marriage. It's easy to go in, but it's very hard to get out of it. It's very expensive to get out of it.
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I
1: have a few friends who are either divorced or going through a divorce. They're like, if I were to go do it again, I'll never get married. It's to that point, which is true for investments. When people are burning their hands on the life insurance product, it's not the life insurance product is bad. It's because their commitment to the product was made in the lack of understanding of what it really means right? Because it's exciting to go do it. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this product and my rest of my life is going to be taken care of. It's never that easy. Nothing is never that easy. There's always a price to pay. And in this case, it's a good price to pay, which is the commitment to save. So to tell us more, does the annuity come first, Mary, or the life insurance product comes first? What comes first?
0: Well, obviously it depends upon where people are in their stage of life. I mean, obviously if people are young, with young families that obviously so the most important thing is really to protect the human life value because right. whether you're a father or your mother or whatever the greatest asset they have is really the economical value of their life yeah and actually if you read my first book the pirates of manhattan go to barryjamesike.com i document how the life insurance payment of all time was the 9 11 twin towers when they essentially we, we the u.s taxpayer paid out about 6.2 billion in life insurance benefits to the survivors of, of the 9-11 uh, tragedy and that was all life insurance and so and it was all based upon the economic value and, you know so you're talking about income which potential income so say 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 someone's 40 years old roughly socket and let's say they're making 100 grand a year and i would testify in court on that their human life value would be anywhere and if we say a 100 grand a year and they're getting benefits or so they're going to have a human life value of two to three to four or five million dollars a year and I, prepare a case for that, and I could win that case every day long. And if you don't believe me, look at any wrongful death cases in this country. So they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But the whole thing is the human life value is the greatest value of them all for younger people. And then in retirement, people need to have income streams. So they have, you know, so they don't have to worry about stuff. And they can enjoy their right. grandchildren, or their golf or whatever. It's, it's
1: important because I was talking to my father-in-law who is 80 years old, and they just moved from their primary state of residence, which is they were there for about 40 years. And they've since changed state, And we're now trying to figure out what to do for their next move. Their biggest concern is really, will they have enough money? So we're having a conversation about it because I don't have the fortune to be with a lot of senior citizens and kind of understand how they think about it and what's bothering them the most. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's really about the inconsistency of the income stream because the only income is the required minimum distributions from their qualified retirement plans at this point. That's all they have as an income coming in. And some have pension, some don't have pension, but there's no other source of income.
0: Yeah. And, and let's, you know, the thing is, I've been doing this a long time. I own a pension consulting business. I still do pensions to this day. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of red tape in these things. But the primary purpose of retirement income, income plan is to reduce retirement income, period. Yeah. And I'll talk to anybody that the cows come home. It's not been meant to speculate or gamble with, okay? But that's the way it is in the U.S.
1: I think it deserves repetition. Can you repeat that, what you said? Because it's a very powerful statement.
0: Well, the whole retirement plans in the United States have turned into high-risk savings plans. They're not pension retirement plans at all. Correct.
1: Let me actually embellish that with a little bit more information because a lot of my friends, we invest in alternative assets a lot. And a lot of folks are saying that you know what, I'm not able to take my money at will because my money is blocked for a certain number of years, which is, and I always tell them, when was stock market high and you needed to take your money out, right? If you have a need in your life to liquidate your portfolio, chances are 80 to 90% that the stock market is going to be low. There's very few people who need money when the stock market is high. If you project that and extrapolate that on the future earning, you're saying that I'm investing in my 401k or wherever you invest in for your retirement and when I retire, I'll tap into that money. You're assuming it's a very big assumption the stock market's going to be high when you need that money. Is that going to
0: be? That's what you think Socket, okay? So, this is the thing but I have two actuarial firms who one of um, Cliffwater Associates and uh, out of uh, Marina Del Rey, California Mm -hmm. and another one, um, Biscatica Research and these guys are brilliant and they've actually calculated the rates of return from you know, major public mm-hmm. pension plans, i.e. you're in North Carolina, or state of New Hampshire where I'm at, or Massachusetts, or, Cal- or California, Texas, whatever. What they, they've studied is roughly four or five trillion dollars in assets in these things. Mm-hmm. Even all these esoteric investments suck at, they always generally returns to the mean. And actually a lot of returns, long-term rates of return, over a long period of time, they actually almost mirror 30-year treasury bills is kind of frightening. These guys know their numbers. So I'm not saying people can't make great money on alternative assets or private equity venture capital. I'm just saying, when you look at the pool, generally things return to the mean. So if people are disciplined enough to save, that's a major problem, okay, is in America, I think we're almost negative savings. But if you look at other countries, I don't know how the savings rate is in India where you grew up, whatever, is it? I mean, over there? it used
1: to be all cash. I think now the credit system has invaded. But I remember growing up, my dad would always say, if I don't have cash, we're not buying. We're not taking any debt. Now, even India has a fiat currency, so it doesn't really mean anything anymore. But growing up, which essentially was affordability concept, if you can't afford, don't buy it, period. And there's a whole reason why people used to stay with their families, joint family. Because somebody some long time ago bought a house, it's been in the family for a while, and it's a uh, multiple generations live together. It's because the new generation can't afford anymore to buy all cash. It just doesn't work that way, right? Because the prices and inflation has gone up, but the earning potential has not. But again, the concept of cash, like my brother's till date, has zero debt. He stayed with that thinking. I have definitely moved on to a different part of the world, and I think I have since evolved my thinking. But to your point, actually, you know what? I want to say that a little bit of digression, but it's an important digression. I go back to the Newtonian's law of physics, which you can't really debate. One is momentum equals mass time velocity, right? Momentum in this case is the retirement wealth. Mass is the capital you have to invest, and velocity is the rate of return. So I'm basically bringing that. That's the level of physics I love, which now when you start what thinking
0: is about Isaac it, Newton? Was, Isaac oh, Newton, right?
1: Yes, Isaac Newton, correct.
0: We know what Sir Isaac Newton also said? No. He said, I can figure out the motions of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people.
1: Oh my God, Barry. I think that's crazy, right? Because these two things are so related. If you don't have the invested, you may have the access to the best opportunity that gives you 30% rate of return. Let's just say you do. And you feel like this is the next best thing. If you don't have the capital to invest, what are you going to do with that investment opportunity?
0: Yeah, exactly. So you got to save before you invest. Right. You know, This is the whole thing. And this now, how long have you been in the country now? 23 years. All right. So you're new to the tip country, right? I'm done now, man.
1: I've been part of this country more than I lived in India.
0: So this is the whole thing. I love this country. Don't get me wrong. Okay. And I've been fortunate I've probably 30, 40 countries. I don't know, whatever, but you know where the US stands in the top 20 industrialized countries in the world, in terms of savings, readiness and retirement readiness in the top 20 industrial countries in the world. Where do you think the U.S. is in the top twenty?
1: I think it's going to be the probably the between fifteen and twenty.
0: Nineteen, I think we're, we're next to Uruguay. Okay, when you look at the and I've done this. It, there's a company, uh, the Mercer uh, a Global Pensions. It's an actuarial firm out of Australia. Mm-hmm. They each year they do a, a pension. Who has the best retirement plans in the world? And we're horrible. I mean, the U.S. the United States is horrible. We're kind of like third world. So unless you're really rich, we all rich, whatever, but who knows, or you're someone with a legacy pension or you're a government employee. Right? People are really at risk right now. So that's one of the reasons why it would inspire me to do this. So America, in terms of world league tables, we're also rans.
1: Wow. We mean, continue going this route, man. But I want to be respectful of your time. I know we've been talking for over 30 minutes now. So I do want to give some resources to people. I know you have amazing books that has done a lot of, there's a lot of research in there and you're releasing a new book. Where can people find that book?
0: Then go to www.barryjamesdyke.com. And the next will probably come on Amazon, but I'm working on that. But So right now for barryjamesdyke.com. Go to barryjamesdyke.com so people actually can buy them off of Amazon, but they're actually a book I saw off my website for $38. Unfortunately, the people on Amazon charge like 100 bucks. Right. So some people make a living reselling my book, which is fine. I'm a capitalist. so But any anyway, event, so go to barryjamesdyke.com. Yeah. And then there's also, I used to have a podcast, uh, kind of like what you're doing, called The Economic Warrior. And I used to interview economists and things like that. But yeah, and there's also a mailing list, which I'll let people know about what the stage of the work I'm going on to. But in any event, so it'll be a, a very exciting information for the people. Like for you mentioned annuities. I know we really didn't get into the subject, but one of the big things which I learned in my research talk oh. is that when I started researching it, everyone thought like annuities were bad, like Ken Fisher and Susie yeah. Orman and Dave Graves, they all said they're horrible. Well, AT&T and Raytheon and all these banks and General Motors and, you know, British Pension Plan, HSBC Bank and Kimberly-Clark and all these major institutions are all buying annuities to finance their pension plans. Matter of fact, even the New York Times is at the bottom. Right. And the BBC, wow. you know, bought them. So this would be in the, all the new book.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is what I like about the, uh, talking to people like that on the podcast, right? Because... What you have to do is what Ken Fisher's, Susie Orms, and Dave Ramsey of the world, it's not wrong, but it's also not right. So you have to understand because what's wrong and right is for you as a personal situation, right? And this is not an investment advisory show at all. So we're not giving you personal recommendations. All we're trying to tell is that think for yourself because until you think for yourself, you're going to live in a world of slavery. It's a new form of slavery, right? Where... Wall Street, and most of my listeners know my relationship with the Wall Street. I have a love hate relationship with them. actually more hate than love. That's okay. That's not a different show. But you have to think for yourself. There's a place, there's a role that Wall Street plays in everyone's life. And it's important to know that role, but also these products. You have to understand these products. You have to talk to people like Barry and understand the products too. in a sense that you can make good judgment calls. And I know Barry. Barry is not a hard salesman, he's not going to twist your arm. Nobody can. He's not going to twist your arm and say that, no, you have to buy the annuity products. Give him a call. i to set up a time with him, right? And see if this product works for you. And if it doesn't, great. You at least learn something more than what you knew before. That's what I would recommend. I would definitely recommend getting his book. I am on the list to get that book as well. I'm looking forward to reading that book for, from you. Now, Barry, one thing I want to ask is, do people have to read your volume one, two, three to get sense of three or four or four can well, stand by it's itself? A, it's
0: a progression. Essentially, the first book I wrote, the reason why I wrote it, it was kind of a God thing. I went through a very tough time in my life. I had to kind of reinvent myself. I went through a divorce, lost everything, whatever. But I figured out that the banks are actually were the biggest buyers of life insurance and annuities in the country. And no one really helped me at the time. But make a long story short, I worked hard on it. I had a really good guy to back me. And I took off and that one book still sells to all over the world to this day. Then the second book I wrote, Pirates Man at 2, was about target date Punch, which is the core investment for 401 mm-hmm. sa- savers today. That's the 70, you know, 80% of all income goes into these crappy funds. But I wrote that one in 2012 and that kind of put me in the map. And then the third book I wrote was guaranteed income when, and a friend of mine, David Walker, who used to be the Comptroller General of the United States, Mm-hmm. Believe me, I believe in my work so much. He wrote the forward to it. Nice. And then I'm doing this last book on uh, retirement income and so forth. It's not last yet. I'm, I'm know, no feeling yeah, there's going to be well, more coming out. <laughs> so, this one's been a tremendous amount of work and discipline. And anyone can do it. Anyone can write a book, whatever. But It's like being good in a sport or whatever. It, it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice. I'm very, very grateful that uh, God's blessed me enough to do this stuff. But it's not easy. The stuff you learn is really fun. You go like... So, this is how this stuff really works. So, mm-hmm. really, the, in my parting words to your, your listeners or whatever always invest in yourself and what you think is really the best for yourself and do your research. Don't take my word for it. Right. Do your own research and do always do what's best for yourself, but always invest in yourself first and foremost.
1: I love that. Barry, with that, we're going to shift gears. With the last two questions of the show. We always end the show on two questions. One is if you were to go back to your 20 year old self, what's one insight? I have a feeling it's going to be invest yourself, but let me ask you this question again and see if there's some other insight you would share with that one yourself?
0: Wow. That's a great question. So that's a great question. This is kind of funny, you know, in my life, my faith and my belief in God is the most important thing in my life. So I guess maybe I would probably um, have more discipline and faith in what I did. I mean, I, this came later in life, but now I guess maybe I have more grounding in faith and discipline. I was always pretty active in sports and stuff like that, but really when you're young, you know, it's kind of crazy. so. So I could change something if I could go back and do that. That's what I would change, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Little- Last question,
1: Barry. Where do you feel there are some major gaps in humanity right now?
0: There's so much division. They're not off love. Yeah. you got to really help people in the stuff. It's just we can't save the world, but we can help others. And I think there's always someone worse off than any of us, and we always got to really try to help other people. Right. I think, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, we can't be – if we can just help one person or whatever, I think really that's really – if we could all do that, it would be a much better place and start right. all this division crap. Because I hate all this partisan politics now and stuff like that. But it's just, I don't don't trust any of these parties, quite frankly. But I think really to help one another, love one another, be a part of example.
1: Yeah. Very. One last question before we part ways is what's one non-financial question you wish we could ask the next guest on our show?
0: What's the one non-financial question? Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this stuff?
1: I love that. Yeah, your Why? Perfect.
0: Why are you doing this? Why are you doing what you do? I love
1: that, man. It's kind of funny. We always start our show with why are you doing what you're doing? Which is, I think it's a key core of getting a better understanding of somebody's motivation for doing the work, right? And I love that part of it.
0: Yeah, I hate bullies. I hate financial bullies. That's why am I doing it? I don't like financial bullies. I never liked them in the schoolyard. And I don't like financial bullies today.
1: And Wall Street is full of those, buddy. You know that better than I do. Awesome. Well, Barry, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate that. I encourage people to go to the website and the website will be listed on the show notes below. So you'll be able to explore that, understand that and get his book. See what it's all about. Thank you.
0: Thank you. God bless.
1: My great to other listeners, it is possible that you could defer paying high tax bill by completing a 1031 exchange and invest your real estate capital gains into a qualified replacement property. My friend, Ray DeWitt at Bangurta Financials is your single point of contact for 1031 exchanges and tax saving strategies. To learn more, call him at 801-312-9482. That's 801-312-9482. Or visit his website at com forward slash 1031guy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own
0: advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.